Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of Polar Times, the podcast that brings you science and stories from literally the coolest places on the planet. It's me again, Jack, and my guest today is the curator of the Perry Macmillan Arctic Museum, which is part of Bowdoin College of Brunswick in May. Uh, we had an interesting, I had a really interesting discussion with my guest today. I've learned absolutely loads. We covered so many topics from, you know, who the Paleo-Inuit are, the original, the first humans who occupied the Arctic North in America, to some of the more well-known figures of American polar history, including uh, Peary, obviously, who was the first, one of the first men at the Arctic North Pole. But um, it wasn't their stories that kind of stuck with me. I was, I recorded this um, introduction straight after I did the episode, and here I am two weeks later re-recording it because I just the, some of the stories kind of really stuck with me, especially the tragic tale of Minnick Wallace and what happened to him. And yeah, I just yeah, this isn't a trigger warning, but it's just you know it was um we had we had a really interesting chat. It's it's hard, I suppose, when you're a, a museum and you have to accept and realize that museums are, you know, <laughs> a lot of them originally colonial institutions, um, but that their function today, as you would hope, has changed massively, and they're trying to find a way in this new, in a modern world. So we chatted a little bit about that, and we chatted about some of the collections and exhibitions that the museum has. They have an absolutely fabulous, I go on about it in the episode, a fabulous online virtual exhibitions and stuff. It would be perfect for homeschooling if that's what you are doing right now so anyway yes so it's a it's a good episode super interesting there's some highs there's some lows we go through everything and if you like history and you like the polls then this is the episode for you i hope that you enjoy it and if you have any uh, questions or comments then we would love to hear from you a reminder that we are an organization made up of volunteers none of us are professional media <laughs> producers or anything like that so this we're just doing it for the love of it and we would love to hear your feedback and uh, etc you can email these are polar times at gmail.com or you can tweet apex at uh, polar underscore research uh, enjoy the episode thank you okay everyone please welcome to the stage my guest for this week's episode genevieve lemoyne hi jenny how's it going it's going pretty well considering the main weather we're having yeah we are wondering if we we're going to be able to do it with the snow at your end but it, it sounds okay so <laughs> we'll power through yeah thanks for thanks for joining this is the first part of the podcast we like to call it the icebreaker because it's where we get to know you our guest so who are you and how did you come to the polar world? Well, I'm, my job title is curator and registrar of the Peary Macmillan Arctic Museum at Bowdoin College. So I'm a museum curator. Professionally, my training is as an archaeologist, and I continue to also do archaeological research as part of my museum work. I started working in the Arctic a long time ago in 1986, and I was attracted to fieldwork in the Arctic and research in the Arctic generally because I'd been studying bone tools, so looking at how people made and used tools from animal bones. And as I learned more and more about bone technology generally, it became obvious that historically, at least, the people in the Arctic made 
the most amazing, sophisticated and complex bone tools because they used a lot of bone and antler and ivory. They didn't have wood for the most part, so they made great use of it. And I thought if I'm really going to study this technology, I should go to where it is the most interesting and complex. Plus, of course, with a frozen environment, they're very well preserved. Although I was hesitant about doing fieldwork in cold, cold places, I joined a, a project on Northern Devon Island in 1986 and just had such a fantastic time that I've never wanted to work anywhere else since, actually. <laughs> so that's how I got started. Okay, fabulous. So you never imagined when you were younger that it was the Arctic was going to draw you there. It just uh, was a kind of professional thing. Right, yeah. No, I distinctly remember being at a, a lecture by, a, a, by Peter Schlaterman, actually, at the University of Calgary, and thinking, wow, that stuff is really interesting, but I'd never want to work there. But I changed my mind. <laughs> I always kind of thought something similar. I would prefer tropical to polar just for the warmth. But, you know, <laughs> I have no complaints now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, so you're here today to talk to us about partly about um, your museum and the collections that you have there, but also just about kind of polar history in general. I am afraid that I'm a scientist through and through, and I don't. My polar history is a bit shocking for <laughs> for someone who works in polar places. I'm more, um, a bit of Antarctic stuff, and then in the north, I know uh, Peary was the first. Was he the first man at the pole, or the first Westerner at the pole? I'm not sure. The first he and Matthew Henson and four Inuit men were the first six men at the pole. Um, okay. Yeah. Okay, Before yeah, that, so I knew any reason to go there, really. <laughs> sure. Okay. So I knew his name, and I knew a tiny bit about Franklin and a little bit about John Ray as well, but that's it. Oh, Apart yeah. from that, yeah. <laughs> I'm out. So um, why don't you start us at the beginning, I suppose, to what it was, um, how much do we know about kind of the original people of the indigenous people at the Poles? Like, what is the kind of prehistory? Prehistory is really my first love in the Arctic, rather than the history that I've been drawn into through the museum. And it's fascinating and we're, we still have a lot to learn. We've learned a lot in the last 30 years since I've been involved in it. The Arctic, I think a lot of people are surprised to find out that people first lived in the Arctic, the high Arctic I'm thinking of, and the North American Arctic, uh, about 4,500 years ago, quite a long time. And that early, and it, it's early because of course, during the Ice Ages, the Arctic was the last place to be deglaciated. So for a long time, nobody could live there for any reason. And people didn't migrate into that area until about 4,500 years ago when there was an ecosystem established that they could hunt in. Um, but even at that early date, we find sites, archaeological sites, uh, in far northern Greenland, far northern Canadian Arctic, Places that are very, that look on the surface at least very bleak and barren and hard to live in. And yet people got there. And those people, they hunted both land animals and sea mammals, particularly seals. And they did pretty well. The high Arctic sort of gets waves of occupation and then it gets abandoned um, as resources depleted, either because the climate got colder or warmer or for whatever reason. But generally, you get people living there for thousands of years. Um, 
And these are people that archaeologists call Paleo-Inuit or sometimes Paleo-Eskimo. And they made tools that we call the Arctic small tool tradition. Beautiful little finely made stone blades and arrowheads and harpoon points and things like that. Around 1300 AD, these people start to disappear from the archaeological record. We stop finding sites. The oldest sites, we might get some in the 1400s maybe. And about that time, we start finding sites made by different people with a different technological tradition. Archaeologists call them, sometimes they're called Neo-Inuit or Sometimes they're called Neo-Eskimo, Thule people, we call them sometimes. And they are the ancestors of the contemporary Inuit who live all across the Arctic today. They moved out of Alaska, you know, between starting, my dates are always very rough in this case, but, you know, between 12 and 1300 AD, they start moving across the Arctic. And they move very, very quickly and occupy the whole area, all the way through to northern Greenland, the East Greenland coast, down into Labrador. And they hunted the same kinds of animals as the people, the earlier groups of people, but they also hunted whales, big bowhead whales. So they had different technology. I don't want to say more sophisticated technology, but different technology and um, slightly different, particularly when they're hunting whales, slightly different social organizations so that they had bigger collaborative hunting groups than the people who preceded them. And they established themselves, you know, in the Arctic. They, they came out, they came from Alaska, from an Arctic environment. They established themselves and they're still there, still hunting. In some places, still hunting bowhead whales where they can. Um, otherwise, hunting and doing modern things as well, of course. Okay, interesting. And do you have any idea, I mean, uh, kind of population sizes of these times and then how that's changed into modern times? Population estimates for the early period are really, really hard. I mean, there have to be, you know, many thousands of people just across that vast area, but a small and scattered population. As you get closer to the present in the, you know, when the the ancestors of the Inuit, their community size was a little bit bigger depending on the location, but still individual communities, maybe hundreds or a few thousand, but not tens of thousands. And then obviously, of course, Indigenous people have their whole culture and, um, you know, have been there much longer and et cetera. They're obviously the native owners of the land, but, and you could talk about them and their disparate um, you know, cultures for, <laughs> oh, yeah, for a long time. <laughs> for the whole podcast, yeah, <laughs> easily. <laughs> but then, um, so the, but let's just move on a little bit in history. So when did, I suppose, um, kind of, is the right term Westerners? Is that, I'm not sure if that's, yeah. you know, yeah. when did Westerners um, start taking an interest in northern places? Um, expeditions begin and that kind of thing. Well, I mean, in the North American Arctic, there's there's a, of course, apocryphal, not, I shouldn't say apocryphal, but not very well-documented tales of early, you know, Greek expeditions to Ultima Thule. That's where the name comes from. We don't know exactly where they were going. You can, it depends on whether you want to include the Norse, who, of course, came to yeah. Greenland and, you know, lived in Greenland for hundreds and hundreds of years and lived for a little while in Newfoundland and Labrador or at least in Newfoundland. We don't have sites in Labrador yet. The, what we think of as modern Europeans, I think the, the first person who really 
tried to do anything significant in the Arctic was maybe Martin Frobisher, who came across to what is now called Frobisher Bay and thought he had found gold and tried to set up a small colony to mine gold. Of course, it wasn't gold, it was pyrites. And following him, there's sort of a slow, steady progression of people coming to the north, uh, coming for, for whaling. And certainly, like, the history of Greenland is, you know, whalers, Dutch whalers, and then uh, Scandinavian whalers and English whalers coming into Davis Strait to whale. Um, and then, of course, you also get exploration because people want to find the Northwest Passage so they can get to Asia. And that drives, obviously, a lot of the even 18th, but certainly the 19th century exploration of the area. And then were there any kind of standout figures or expeditions of note that, you know, really kind of sum up the period of exploration of the Arctic? Well, I mean, people will always, I think, focus on the Franklin expedition sent out by the British Admiralty to find the Northwest Passage. They went out, they got into fairly far into the central Canadian Arctic islands where the ship was frozen in and they never ever got out again and they disappeared. That's, it's a tragedy and it's one that we're still learning about. I don't know if you've been following over the last four or five years, the discovery of the wrecks of those ships, which is a oh, huge... Of course, I think I did hear that, yeah. yeah. So the air of Yeah, of course, both of those ships, like, you know, the Inuit knew where they were, if anybody had bothered to ask them or paid attention to what they were being told. Um, but Parks Canada now has officially found them and started work on them. And that's going to teach us a lot about what happened, what went wrong with that expedition. From an exploration point of view, the important part of the loss of the Franklin expedition was the subsequent search for them. You know, the Admiralty did not want to abandon them. They'd been gone for years. And Franklin, who was the leader of the expedition, his wife, Jane, Lady Jane Franklin, was very active and very much involved in encouraging people to look for her husband. And so there are, I forget how many expeditions that went out from Britain until, you know, the Admiralty was beginning to think, you know, they found some things. They found the famous graves on Beachy Island, for example. They found some notes and some had some indication of where the expedition had gone. But they were getting, it was getting obvious that they were not going to find them. It was too many years had passed. And Lady Jane didn't want to give up. And she started asking Americans also to start looking for Franklin. And so some did. Elisha Kent Kane, for instance, started off looking for Franklin, but he went straight up. He had ulterior motives, I think, and he went straight up Davis Strait, where they knew Franklin had not gone. You get independent people like Charles Francis Hall, who was a printer in Philadelphia and decided he would get involved in the Franklin expedition with very few resources, but he hitched a ride up with some whalers. And he actually talked to Inuit and learned some very important facts and recovered some relics and things like that. So there was all kinds of exploration um, that went on and the Canadian Arctic islands really were mapped by the Franklin search expeditions. So that's, I think that's always going to be a, a, a sort of center part of Arctic exploration history. And then uh, your museum obviously is called the Peary Macmillan uh, right. Museum at Bowdoin. Yeah. So uh, who were those two? People are probably most familiar with Robert Peary who 
1909 claimed to have gone to the North Pole. Peary was a graduate of Bowdoin College, as was Macmillan. That's why the museum is at Bowdoin College. Peary was determined to do something that would make him famous. And in the 1880s, that appeared to be going to the North Pole. And he worked for years learning about the Arctic, learning how to survive in the Arctic, trying different methods, perfecting his technique till he thought he could get there. He did many multi-year expeditions, basing himself mostly in northwestern Greenland, uh, but sometimes also on Ellesmere Island in, for instance, 1898 to 1904, or 1902, sorry, he spent most of his time on Ellesmere Island making attempts to get, each spring, each attempts to get to the North Pole. His genius was that unlike people always make comparisons to British expeditions, but it wasn't just British expeditions. Unlike them, he recognized that the Arctic was a home and that one could live comfortably there as long as one lived like the people who did live there, whose home it was. And so he adopted almost wholesale Inuit technology, clothing, transportation, dog sledding skills, hunting skills, all of those things. He was trained as an engineer and he always thought he could, he was always tinkering and trying to make things better. And of course his needs to go to the North Pole were slightly different than what a hunter would need. You know, um, you had asked if he was the first Westerner at the North Pole and people do wonder that, like hadn't the Inuit gone to the North Pole, but they hadn't because it's way, way out there in the middle of the ocean. There's nothing out there to eat. (laughs) So, you know, you don't go out there to hunt. It's too far it's too dangerous. So no, they had never been there. And it means that to go there, you need to have everything, all your supplies for days, weeks and weeks and weeks. So he needed bigger sleds. He needed condensed food that would feed people. He needed, and he was very careful with fuel because he needed to boil water to make tea. And there's, you know, he designed stoves. There's a famous story, Big Milland, who was on this expedition, wrote about how he perfected a stove that the, the fuel reservoir held just enough fuel to melt the water for tea for four men, to melt ice and make it boil in nine minutes, which is really quite fast. And then once the water boiled, it would run out of fuel. And they were always sorry because they wanted to warm their hands around it. But you couldn't, you know, you, he balanced all the weight and everything like that because the dogs can only pull so much on the dog sleds. He made it to the, he may have made it to the North Pole. That's the other big question. Did he ever get there? Oh, um, he, he got, he probably got pretty close, but of course he had a standard sextant and I'm no navigator, but navigating with a sextant in the Arctic is challenging in part because you can't always see a horizon. So the navigators say he probably could only have placed himself within five miles of any particular point. So he may or may not have gotten to the actual pole. He knew about this problem of that he wouldn't be able to specifically say he was there. So when he got where, when they got where he thought they were at the North Pole, he did like crisscrossing sledge journeys, 10 miles in multiple directions, just to, to cover the ground, so to speak. Okay. Um, yeah, he did the work. We'll say. He yeah, did. He, he did. Yeah. Whether whether he was at the pole or whether he was thirty miles from the pole, as some people say, because of drifting ice, mm-hmm. I don't. It doesn't really matter because no matter 
the one thing he showed is that at the pole, it is drifting ice. There's no land there. There's no, there was at the time, no economic value in claiming the pole. There was nothing in the, in the early 20th century to claim in that sense. So he got there, he came back. He didn't lose, well, almost didn't lose anyone. And the, the debate over whether he got there or not still goes on today, but is really immaterial because we're never going to be able to prove it one way or the other. So that's Peary. Um, Macmillan was another Bowdoin graduate, uh, much younger than Peary, but he was uh, an assistant on that expedition. He didn't get anywhere near the pole. And it's a, Peary had a complex arrangement of people moving supplies up the trail for him and then getting sent back. And Macmillan was one of those people. But like almost everybody who goes to the Arctic, Macmillan fell in love with it. He was in his 30s. He was a teacher uh, when he went on the expedition, and he never went back to teaching. He determined on the basis of that one experience that he also would be an Arctic explorer. He started graduate school. He started planning other expeditions, and he just continued on. In 1921, he raised money to launch his own ship, the schooner Bowdoin, and he sailed the Bowdoin north until 1954 made 26 trips, I think, altogether to the Arctic, some of them overwintering. In one case, in the teens, he was in at Ita, northern Greenland, for four years, actually, in a row. He's much less well-known today than Peary is, but in his own time, he was very, very well-known. He, When he wasn't in the Arctic, he was traveling the country, lecturing, showing films and slideshows, and talking about his experiences, talking about Inuit culture, making people aware of what Arctic life was like. It was an sure. incredibly popular lecture. Sure, the science communication of the day. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And I, I believe a lot, you have a lot of in your collection at the museum is from his expeditions, like photos and films. And yes, the museum collections are much more based on Macmillan's material than Peary's. Peary's photographs and his journals and things like that are all at the National Archives. But we have Macmillan's journals and papers and his photographs and his motion picture film. So it's a, it's a really amazing resource, actually. Yeah, fabulous. I have to say, I have been very much enjoying all of the virtual exhibitions and everything you oh. can do Thank on you. the website, which if you're listening to this podcast, you should definitely go and check it out because there's loads to do. It's an incredible resource. And I just noticed uh, two other names or two other ex- exhibitions that you have. I was going to ask you about them, if I may. Sure. One of them was Matthew A. Henson, probably yes. was on the period expedition. Right. So Matthew Henson, he's one of my favorite people um, in all these expeditions. He was an African-American as a very young man. Actually, he ran away to sea when he was a teenager and sailed around the world and was lucky in that the captain of the ship he was originally a cabin boy, I guess, on, sort of took him under his wing and continued his education and made sure that he got better reading and the kinds of things because he left school at, I don't know, when he was 12 or something like that. But then as a teenager in his late teens, I guess, he was back in Baltimore. Peary was looking for a valet and Henson was recommended to him. So Peary hired Henson to be his valet when he went to Nicaragua, where he was doing a survey for the Navy to build a canal. Obviously, that canal never got built. Henson went down to Nicaragua then as a valet, but by the time he got back, he was a survey crew chief, and he was obviously a very talented and skilled young man. Peary kept him on as an assistant through the Navy, and when he decided in 1891 to do an overwintering expedition to Greenland, he asked Henson if he wanted to go, and 
Henson said, yeah, of course. <laughs> um, and he went on every subsequent expedition. He became completely fluent in Inuktitut. He was, according to the Inuit, one of the best dog sled drivers. He was a skilled yeah. hunter. He just, he really thrived in that community. Uh, he was much more integrated into the community, community than Piri was. Piri also spoke Inuktitut, but not quite as fluently as I understand it. Um, and he was always, uh, and maintained his, his role as a leader and, and sort of distant from the people below him, which was everyone. Um, whereas Henson was what, much more integrated into the community and everybody liked him. I, I was there when I was there interviewing people in the nineties, they still remembered him and talked about, you know, he has descendants there, of course, as does Piri. Um, you know, they talked about the, the loving and joking relationship that he had with his wife, you know, his Inuit wife. And he was just absolutely essential on that expedition. You know, he had, Peary had lots of support on the North Pole expedition. Peary had lots of supporting young men to work with him, American men. Henson was the chief. He wasn't called the chief assistant, but he was the chief assistant. Um, he, he oversaw building the sleds. He oversaw constructing the stoves. He was the one, as they moved north, for example, and the team on the trail got smaller and smaller and people were being sent back. Henson was the one who decided, who went through all the dogs and picked out the good dogs, sent the bad dogs back. Um, and finally, when it came to picking the last people who would go to the North Pole, Peary had to choose between Matthew Henson and Robert Bartlett, who was, a, who was the captain of the ship and had considerable Arctic experience. But ultimately, he said, I need to have Henson with me. And so it was Matthew Henson who was at the North Pole. Of course, they got back and everybody was getting awards and celebrated. And in the early 20th century in the United States, being an African-American meant that you were, he was excluded from most of that, uh, almost all of that. He, got, he, he was given banquets and awards by the African-American community in New York particularly, um, he went on a brief lecture tour, but he did not reap the rewards that all the others did from the expedition. He eventually got recognition. Chicago Geographical Society gave him a gold medal in the 1950s. National Geographic awarded him posthumously their Hubbard Medal in, the, I don't know, 2000 maybe? Um, you know, his, his, his accolades came really very, very late and largely as a part of, you know, a result of the civil rights era, I think. The one thing that, it, that does strike me most about the recognition he got is that people who worked in the Arctic, who knew him, recognized him much, much earlier. So Macmillan, who knew him, um, Wilhelmer Stephenson, who knew him more by reputation than in person, and other Arctic people, they were lobbying the government, for instance, to give him a pension long before any of these other things happened. There's even a story, actually, from very early, from the early dinners in 1909 and 1910, where Macmillan and George Bork, apparently, there was a big banquet in one of the big hotels, and the two of them dressed him up as an Arab sheik because then he could get into the banquet. We don't know if that's true or not. We've heard the story. We don't know if it's true. I've looked through photographs of the banquets to see if I can see any people dressed in Arab clothing, but I haven't found anyone yet. But, you know, it, it's really tragic 
that he didn't get the the recognition at the time. Mm-hmm. Nowadays, it's it's much better, and we try. In fact, we're just we will in the next day or two put up a little virtual exhibit about him um, on our website, so people can see it there. Yeah. Okay, and they will be able to see it by the time this comes out. Definitely. <laughs> oh yeah, for, I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And um, the other name I came across was um, Minnick Wallace. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah. This is yeah. a a different story. <laughs> it is a different story. It's a it's a very challenging story. In the 1890s, Peary was doing a variety of summer expeditions to Greenland to bring back the meteorites. And if anybody's been to the Meteorite Hall in the American Museum of Natural History, you can see the giant iron meteorites that he brought back from Greenland at that time. Franz Boas, who was the chief anthropologist at the museum at the time, and who had himself done Arctic field work in Baffin Island um, in the past, he asked Peary to bring one man back from Greenland to spend a year at the museum so that Boaz could interview him and work with him and learn more about their culture. Peary came back with six, six, including Minnick. So I think the man he at first I approached to see if he wanted to come said, sure, I'll come, but I want my wife to come and I want my son to come. And then some other young men also decided that they wanted to come. And it's hard to know. We don't, I don't know. I don't know if anybody knows why Peary thought that would be a good idea to bring this group of people down. Part of it is, I think, the year before, Peary's wife, say, we haven't talked about Josephine, but she made multiple trips to the Arctic as well, including overwintering and including having the baby in the Arctic. So the year that she'd had, she had the baby in September and didn't go back home then to Philadelphia until July, the next July. And she brought back with her a young woman um, who was sort of a nurse for the baby. She spent a year, this young woman spent a year in Philadelphia. And then when Pierre went back the next summer, he took her back with her. And she told people, they didn't believe her. She told them all about, you know, trains and cars and skyscrapers. And they didn't believe her. She apparently stopped talking about it because people just were not believing her. But she had this perfectly successful adventure. So the next summer, when Peary asked if people wanted to go back, it didn't seem, it wasn't a totally strange idea. And people, you know, this young woman had safely done it. So why shouldn't an adult man do it or even his son? So they brought all these people down. Peary took them to the museum, handed them over basically to Boaz um, and to the museum staff, and then went about his life. Um, And shortly afterwards actually went on a tour, lecture tour of Britain and Europe. So he left the continent. Living in the museum was not really very good. People very soon came down with respiratory illnesses. Most of them died. One adult male survived and went back the next summer, but Minnick was orphaned and he was adopted by a staff member at the museum and raised as an American boy. I mean, he did well in athletic competitions. He went to school, he got to university, he got into university. As many young men do, began feeling a little bit you know, concerned about things and eventually discovered that he'd been at his father's funeral, but he eventually discovered with the help of the media that his father hadn't actually been buried, that he and the other people had been processed and their bones were in the museum's collection. There's some stories they were on exhibit. The museum denies they were on exhibit and it's at this point impossible to tell, but whatever, there's no doubt that the bones were in the museum. And he got very upset about that. 
not surprisingly, um, and started trying to, to get the bones back to, you know, he started appealing to Piri to help him. Piri was not at all helpful. And there was a big media outcry, the lots of, lots of press about it. Ultimately, he did manage, he decided he wanted to go, he couldn't live in the United States anymore, and he wanted to go back to Greenland. And he managed to get on a ship and get back to Greenland. In 1909, he arrived as Piri was coming back from the North Pole expedition. Piri left him stuff to help him, you know, guns and equipment and things like that to help him get sorted, uh, established there. And he began living in Greenland again. Um, he had to relearn everything. You know, he'd forgotten most of the language. He didn't know how he had never had the opportunity to learn how to hunt, to drive a dog sled, do all those things, paddle a kayak. So he had to learn all of those things, which he started to do. The next thing we hear about him is in 1913, when Macmillan goes back north with the Crockerland expedition and Minnick is there. And so there's this guy who now speaks Inuktitut and also English. So the expedition hires him as an interpreter and he does start working for the expedition, but he's still always a person in between. He's neither American nor completely Inuit because of his strange upbringing. So he works for the expedition for a while, but eventually he gets fed up and he goes back to the US and he has, some people say he had a plan actually to, to start a business, you know, importing wood and things like that, that the community would need. It doesn't really work out that well. And he ends up working in a lumber camp in Northern New Hampshire where he dies with the Spanish flu and he's buried there. So it, it's a very, very tragic story. Peary's role, Peary is often highly criticized for his role in it. He should have intervened sooner perhaps uh, with the people, Boaz should have known better too, for that matter. I mean, it was, you know, it was really an appalling thing to expect people to do. Not unusual in those times, but still, you know, many people at the time didn't think it was really all that great of an idea. Minnick is still in northern New Hampshire. His grave is still there. And actually, we have a, a photo exhibit about it on the museum website. And you can, I, there's a, I took, went up it's not very far from here. We drove up and took a picture of his of his grave. It's still there, but the other bodies have actually since been re returned to Kanak and are buried in the cemetery in Kanak, so they're no longer at the museum. But yeah, it's a it is a tragic story. Yeah, it really is. Um, and I mean, the fact that it probably wasn't that unusual for those times to hear tales of colonial horror. Right, yes, yeah, it doesn't you know make it any easier to listen to but you're totally right what you said before it's important for people to yeah keep remembering there are there is a book by ken harper called give me my father's body that goes into much more detail than i can go into here there's also an interesting film i'm trying to remember the name of it right now i may have to send you a link to it and i don't know if it's available but it's a very interesting film because they the filmmakers worked with vishu robert peary the second who is the great grandson of peary from Greenland. Oh, okay. Um, so they kind of the he Hrishu and the the um, the filmmakers kind of followed Minnick's path um, and and looked at the echoes because in the sixties when Hrishu was a young kid, the as in many of these communities, children were being sent away to residential schools, and so were like Minnick, you know at a crucial time when they should have been learning or would have wanted to have been learning the skills they needed in their communities, they were in a school learning math and geography, things like that. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, if you remember the name of that film, I mean, people could probably just Google, <laughs> Google it yes. and find yeah. out. But yeah, we'll put a yeah. the name of it in the bio of this episode or something. Yeah. Um, can I ask you? Let's talk about what's in the museum currently. So, can I ask you what are your favorite artifacts or exhibits that you have in the museum right now? Of course, our museum's closed right now, as are most museums, I guess, in the world. But, um, but in fact, we have just installed a new exhibit that I'm very excited about, um, and which we created because of COVID. We created an online version of. So you've maybe seen the the Hayek exhibit. So this is is kind of interesting because it has our oldest and our newest artifacts in it. One of the very earliest pieces that we can document as having arrived at Bowdoin College from the Arctic is a full-size Labrador Hayek. And it's been on exhibit in the museum since it opened in 1967. It's 22 feet, I think, long, still covered in the original seal skin. It's an amazing piece. And in February, this past February, just before COVID shut everything down, we had Noah Nakasak, who's a Hayek revival lead for the Nunatsiavik government. That, he, that is, he's developing programs to bring back Hayeking to the community of Nunatsiavik, which is the Labrador Inuit. And so we, Noah came down and worked with us and a local um, Hayek builder to make a replica of our 1891 Hayek. And so that's the centerpiece of this exhibit, which looks at Hayeking generally in the, the Eastern Arctic but and Alaska. But the, the, the two Labrador, the old and the new, they're so big, of course they dominate the exhibit. But also we were lucky enough to get, um, you know, film of building the kayak. And Noah very generously let us film him as he described and named all the different parts of a kayak. Um, and things like that. So those films are online as well. And I'm just waiting for people to be able to come in and see this in person. Um, We don't know when that will be, but hopefully in, I don't know, a few months, maybe we'll be able to open to the public in some way again. So right, right now, of course, it's always the newest that thing that comes to your mind, but those are some of my, my favorite things right now. The kayak, just for our listeners right now, does it look similar to uh, you know, modern kayaks, what people will be picturing, or is it? Um, yes, it does. I mean, it's it's recognizably a kayak. It's it's skin covered. It's got a cockpit. It has its paddle is with it, um, but it has key differences. Um, if you look at modern fiberglass kayaks, they're based really on Greenlandic kayak design. So they have the same qualities. They're skin covered. They have cockpits and things like that. But they're they're narrower. They're shallower. The cockpits are shaped slightly different. So this big Labrador Hayek, it's quite wide. The cockpit is big. Um, It's not the kind of kayak that you would typically roll. Uh, Noah tells me that they can be rolled, but you wouldn't normally do it the way you would with a Greenland kayak where, you know, they have whole competitions around rolling kayaks. It's bigger they go, the water, kayaks, this is, these are things I've learned while doing this exhibit and talking with Noah. Um, you know, kayaks are built both to fit the kayaker, but also to suit the water conditions that they expect to be in and the things they want to be doing with the kayak. So, you know, a Greenlandic kayak is shallow and, you know, low to the water and narrow so that you can roll it and 
for the kind of icy, but generally often flat water that they're kayaking in. Whereas in Labrador, you're kayaking out in the North Atlantic Ocean. They're also carrying, a Greenland kayak would typically tow whatever you're hunting. If it's small, you might be able to put it on the deck of the kayak behind you, but a big seal or something like that, you would tow it. Whereas in Greenland, or sorry, in Labrador, those kayaks are big enough that you can put things, you can carry things in them or carry more on top of them either. They're much more, they're heavier uh, and they can take more weight. So they're all, they all share many common characteristics, but they're customized to the needs of the people. So, so our kayak is big and heavy compared to what you would see as a Greenland kayak, but it's exactly right for what it was needed for. And you say it's covered in kind of skin to make it watertight, but then what would the frame be made of if they would lacked wood? If there are a lot of wood up there, is that the frame? They are typically made of wood. Um, yeah. In fact, as far as I know, they're always made of wood. Labrador is close enough to the tree line that they just get wood, right. lots of wood. In Greenland, they would rely on driftwood, but okay. interesting. they arrive in sufficient quantities that they could make their hayeks out of them. Yeah. Another exhibit, which we haven't yet made virtual, but we hope to eventually, we've got an exhibit about music and Inuit art, which was also a lot of fun. So it's pieces of mostly of contemporary Canadian Inuit art, prints and soapstone sculptures, but also actual music. <laughs> so we were able to, to find historic recordings of music um, and contemporary music. And even some of our sculptures, we have a great Sokdom sculpture of a guy playing an electric guitar with his amps and stuff like that, which is kind of fun. And we did create, and I think if you go to Spotify, you can find it if you Google Arctic, or if you search on Arctic Museum, we created a playlist to go with, uh, of absolutely contemporary Inuit music uh, to go with it. Because there's lots of great music coming out of the Arctic right now, both Greenland and Canada and Alaska. So That's fantastic. That would be really good to, and that would make a a great... um you know, virtual experience. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Something for lockdown. Have you always had, as a museum, has it always had a really good virtual presence or is it just since COVID that you've been putting things together to... <laughs> really upped our online exhibit presence sure. in, with COVID, yeah. We wanted to reach out, plus we couldn't, we weren't allowed in the museum for many months, so that was all we could do. <laughs> it was right. yeah. yeah. So, but yeah, yeah, it's actually been really successful. We've been very pleased with the response we've had. So, Going forward, I think even when people can come into the museum, we'll continue to to create online versions of the exhibit, in part because, you know, Brunswick, Maine, there's there's lots of people who just are never going to get here. Sure. <laughs> yeah, like I said, and like I said, it's fantastic. Check it out, everyone. Um, you know, it'd be great for homeschooling, I imagine, if you want something yes. a bit different. Uh, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. Okay, fabulous. I believe you have some considerable fieldwork experience. So yeah. can you tell me about a few of your field seasons or the projects you're doing in the field or if you have any fun stories? Oh, <laughs> yeah. Be, <laughs> there's always so there's fun loads. Yeah. 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 I mean, and I think, so we've been, for the, since 2004, and we just finished in 2016, I've been involved in a project in Northern Greenland just about the area where Peary and Macmillan worked, which was a good fit for the museum, but also fit the, the outside interests, the other archaeological interests I had. Um, and we started out wanting to study the reaction and the way people 
accommodated and adapted to the presence of Western explorers in that area because it was kind of a, a focus point for a bunch of exploration expeditions. But in order to do that, of course, we did big general surveys and identified, looked at the broad prehistory. And the last place we excavated was Ita, which is, you know, you can still find it on maps, although nobody has actually lived there for many, many years, but it still shows up as, a, as if it's a town um, on some maps of Greenland. So it's north of Thule Air Base, north of Hanak, which is the, the sort of capital of that region in Greenland now, north of anywhere that's in, inhabited currently, but hunt, although hunters still use it a lot. We started excavating there and we excavated looking at that contact issue. But as we worked, we found much, much earlier occupations of the site as well, including um, some of those earlier people, the Paleo-Inuit groups who would live there about a thousand years ago. Um, and our last project looked specifically at that occupation because we wanted to compare how those earlier people used the identical resources to the later people. Um, see if they were doing things similarly or differently or what they were doing. Uh, plus that site is eroding. We haven't talked about climate change yet, but that's also a big oh, issue. That's on my list. <laughs> okay. yeah. All right, yeah. um, so just to keep it short, one of the things these people, these, paleo, these late Paleo-Inuit people who archaeologists called Dorset, they're famous for little ivory carvings. Uh, and so one day we're on the site and Hans Lange, who's the um, Thule archaeologist for the Greenland National Museum and has been working with us. We've been working together all these years. Um, he's digging away and he comes up and he says, oh, look, I found, he found a little carving of a sculpin, which is a little bottom feeding fish, a beautiful little carving. And I said, oh, that's funny. I found a sculpture just like that once on little Cornwallis Island when we were digging, where we were digging in the 1990s. So many, many years before that the identical carving, but I said, kind of, you know, jokingly, but I also found four other carvings with it, or three other carvings and two harpoon heads when I found mine, and, and that was fine. And we all went back to work. And five minutes later, Hans says, oh, look, I got another one. And ultimately, he collected the same four carvings that I had found in Little Cornwallis Island, and that's like 800 miles away. Wow. And when we went back and looked at the records, there had been two harpoon heads in an adjacent teth pit right near to it found um, in 2012. So we had two identical suites of objects found 800 miles apart. Um, and we're still trying to puzzle out what exactly this means. I mean, we find when you're working on these Dorset sites, you find lots of these carvings, but usually singly, one one here, one there, one there, whatever. You don't often find them in groups. And so to find two identical groups, it was just, it was amazing. And we just, we don't really quite know what it means yet. So that's what a, you know, a good field story. It's not, not necessarily adventure or excitement, but it's, it's really intellectually, it's really challenging, but it's also part of the joy of, you know, digging around in the dirt and finding treasure. <laughs> it's, so I imagine any archaeologist listening are like, wow, how? <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah, I can't imagine you find two, like, two suites of objects, like you say, so similar, like ever. <laughs> so, yeah. 
yeah, yeah exciting. So. And I just have to ask quickly, the um, these paleo Inuit people, would they have had kind of, were they nomadic or would they have had semi-permanent, was it a semi-permanent settlement you were looking at? Uh, they, they moved around, but they would visit the same spots over and over and over again. So you do get sites okay. that have been occupied seasonally for many hundreds and hundreds of years. Are you, are you excavating like dwellings or like grave sites or what's that? Not grave sites. There are very, very, in this, for, for the Dorset, for example, we don't know of any grave sites um, or very, very few. There are, I shouldn't say any, there are very few, but they're typically in the Arctic one, you don't excavate graves. It doesn't really come up much though, because we don't even find them. We, t- we try often to excavate a combination of dwellings and then, you know, outside of dwellings where people have dropped things or lost things or whatever, you know, those sort of, they didn't throw away a lot, but the debitage of making it, you know, the stuff that's left over when you make a tool, for instance, I can tell for archaeologists that we feel we, that can tell us a lot or the, you know, the animal bones that, of the animals that they were eating and things like that. So we do a combination um, at ETA because the, the stuff is buried so deeply, we can only excavate fairly small portions of it. So we don't know whether we're in a house or whether we're outside of a house at this point. Mm-hmm. Okay, and then that leads me on to my next question quite well. You mentioned it before, um, climate change. Is that making your job easier with it kind of ice retreating and revealing spaces or the opposite with, you know, coast eroding? Yeah, exactly. I think between coastal erosion and melting permafrost, climate change is really doing rapid and significant damage to archaeological resources all across the Arctic. Um, and it's, it's, it's a crisis. Um, I have some colleagues, uh, Tom McGovern at City University of New York and Ann Jensen, who's an archaeologist at Utqiagvik, Point Barrow in Alaska. And, you know, they together, I think, have been using this term burning libraries and archaeological sites, which are repositories of cultural heritage, but also of environmental, you know, paleo-environmental data. And we're losing them just faster than we could ever have imagined. Mm-hmm. There's not enough archaeologists to save them. So yeah. it's, it is a crisis. Yeah. It's, yeah. Wow. And I suppose there's not a lot that you can really do to <laughs> about there the is, issue. Yeah, exactly. You can't, you know, the, the best you can do is some salvage excavations, mm-hmm. but you have to know the sites there. You have to have the resources to get to it and to excavate it. And there's just there's not enough time or money or people to save them all so we have to make some very hard decisions yeah 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 so and i suppose most um communities will have been coastal just because that makes the most sense so kind of the biggest repository is what you're losing oh yeah that is tragic (laughs) so sorry (laughs) the museum you know in the museum we're struggling with COVID and not having people in the galleries, but we're also struggling because we have projects that would take us into the communities, but we're, we can't go to the communities right now. So we're, mm-hmm. we're working. For instance, we were supposed to, you know, we had Noah Nakasak down working on Hayek here. The other part of that project is to go up there with Fred, who's the, the Hayek builder here, and make a replica of the Hayek in Maine for the people there to have a replica of it. But of course that has not happened and we're not sure when it will be able to happen. We have the money. Uh, so it's, it will happen. And 
I know and Fred are very excited, but as I, as am I, um, but we have to wait, you know, right now you can't, you, you can't travel to New Nazi Albert. Um, and we're also working on a project. We have an, a really interesting suite of embroidered pieces in the oh, museum. Yes, you mentioned, yeah. In the, um, so the Macmillans collected these um, and we have, as far as we know, the biggest collection of them anywhere. Even in Labrador, nobody has a collection like this. Um, and so we've been working with uh, community members to figure out what, you know, to learn about them and what, what to do in terms of exhibiting them and publishing them and what people would like to know. Um, but that also requires visiting the communities. And so that's kind of on hold. Do you want to talk about these embroidered pieces a little bit? Yeah. So that's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're really amazing. I, Susan Kaplan, who's the director of the museum, she coined the term mini ethnographies. You know, they're, they're mostly table linens and things like that. Napkins and tablecloths and runners, bureau scarves. Um, and they have these scenes of these little people, which in Labrador, they call them inukluk, which means little people doing things, you know, fetching water, fishing, hunting for eggs, Mostly they seem like children and they're just, some of, some of them are playing and doing all kinds of things. They're, so they're curious in that sense. They're, they're beautifully sewn, beautifully embroidered. And actually, as we started taking them to the communities, they became even more and more interesting. Because we, of course, had always, as anthropologists, we're, we were interested in people. So we looked at the people. We forgot that we we're also archaeologists interested in landscapes. And when we got and took them up to Labrador and people were looking at them and they were focusing, you know, they were talking about the people, of course, but also focusing on the landscapes and saying, oh, look, there's Mount Sophia. Oh, look, this wasn't made here. This was made further down the coast. There's too many trees in it. Identifying their buildings in them. So they're identifying the buildings, you know, so-and-so lived in this house, but it's been torn down now. And, you know, so there are just all kinds of information in them, but they were made in a in an interesting context in that they were originally made through the Moravian missionaries. Like the, this whole embroidery tradition on table linens came from the Moravian missionaries. The girls were taught to embroider in school, in a residential school. Um, women were asked to be part of sewing circles as, you know, as part of the church to make things to sell, to raise money for the church and things like that. So they have this interesting colonial history, but the, the women in Labrador very much have, as, you know, as people do, they have sort of transformed them into items of their own. They've kind of taken them over in a sense. Um, and they still, there are people there still doing embroidery, not so much on table linens, but on clothing and things like that. So it's an interesting transformation of the, of the, the tradition, you know, what became, what started out as a very European kind of tradition and had now has become you know, an important, something that's of importance to them, done by them, you know, in their own way. So. Yeah, yeah, that's fascinating. And I love, um, you must love bits like that where you're able to, like, pick up clues from the past, like you're saying, you're able to look at them and the little things together that people wouldn't necessarily notice, but paint yeah. a bigger picture and that's yeah. very satisfying. <laughs> and really, for, as with the embroideries, it's really, it's the people at Labrador painting the bigger picture. I mean, they notice things and tell us things that we would never have thought of, which that's really fantastic. Yeah. Do you have something that you would like to plug or promote? And then we can... Well, I think you've already suggested people look at the website and it would be, I think that is the, 
the place to go. We have lots of online exhibits. We have some information about our pro the various research projects. We do some blog posts about um, different behind the scenes activities. So there's lots to explore. There's some educational activities, some things for kids to do. There's lots going on on our website these days. And if you keep, keep your eye on it, because very soon we hope there'll be information about uh, a new museum where the, we were hoping that construction for a new facility will begin this spring. And in two years time, we'll have a whole new facility that will give us sort of expanded options opportunities to exhibit and research and communicate about Arctic life. Okay, fantastic. There you go. Keep your eyes peeled for a growing Arctic museum in Brunswick, Maine. <laughs> and online, of course. So, yes. <laughs> okay, excellent. That kind of brings us to the end of this week's podcast. So thank you everyone so much for listening. If you would like to get in contact with us, you can email us using our Gmail. Uh, the address is these are polar times at gmail.com. Once more, that address is these are polar times at gmail.com. You can also tweet us at polar underscore research, which is the Apex Twitter. And uh, yeah, if you have any questions or any recommendations for guests or anything like that, just uh, we would love to hear from you. So, all that's left for me is to thank my guests. So, thank you, Jenny, so much, Jenny Lemoyne, for coming on today's episode. Well, thank you, Jack, for having me. It's been a pleasure. Please note that whilst this is an Apex production, the views and opinions expressed by the host and any guests are entirely their own. Do not represent the views or opinions of Apex or any other host institution mentioned.